I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 will be our text for the morning. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. If you're visiting with us, we have a children's church for first through third graders. You're welcome to take part of if you'd like. Just follow the crowd right through the lobby and you can pick them up just past the restrooms in those classrooms immediately following the service. Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. If you were to come into our home for a meal, as many of you have, you would see that in our kitchen, pushed over against the wall, we have uh, kind of a piece that stays there all the time that we used to use three times a day, but because our kids are getting older, uh, we don't use it very much anymore. In fact, in some uh, meals, you'll actually find a little baby doll in that wooden high chair that we have in our kitchen pushed against the wall as uh, our youngest will sometimes get her baby doll out and put the baby doll in the high chair and pull the high chair over to uh, the table and uh, her baby doll will get fed the same time that we all get fed. She has aged out of that high chair, now being five years old. It's hard to believe. They grow up so fast. But the high chair remains in our kitchen. And often when uh, friends come over, they, if they have young children, they immediately see the high chair and they know what it's for. You would not expect to come over to our house for a meal and to have the, the food all brought to the table. Everybody finds their place and for me to take that high chair and pull it to my spot and climb up in that high chair and put on a bib and for my wife to cut up my food and to place it on a table and then I lead us all in prayer before I am fed a meal. Now that seems very odd. In fact, if we're being honest, even a little bit creepy for something like that to happen. Because as we grow and mature, there are certain physical changes that take place, but there are also certain habits, there are certain ways in which we interact with others in which those habits change, and the way that we talk, hopefully, changes, the way that we go about our life, the way that we eat hopefully changes. Because as we mature, we expect to see changes in our lives when we mature physically. What we have before us this morning is a text in which the Apostle Paul explains to the church in Ephesus what spiritual maturity looks like. Just like it would be extremely awkward for that seen to play out in our house with an adult sitting in a child's high chair who is very capable of feeding himself and should have grown past the point of needing to be fed and sitting in a high chair. So Paul looks at the church at Ephesus and he says, pastors in your church have been given so that you may progress to maturity spiritually. And then he gives some reflections of what that maturity looks like. And so as we read through Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 14, I'd like you to see that God has given pastors to the church as we've been examining this role of pastors that we began last Sunday morning. God has given pastors in the church for the express purpose 
of the congregation growing up in maturity. The title of the message is Growing Up in Christ. Somebody may have asked you, why do you have pastors at your church? And there may be points in your life where you say, you know, I'm not really sure. Well, this text answers that for you. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. And he, God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ. Notice the growing up language all through here. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church building itself up in love, growing up together in Christ. And what Paul is explaining to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4 is that God has given gifts to his children for the purpose of maturity. The maturity of the congregation growing up together that the congregation may no longer be children, but that we may grow up in Christ. So the theme of the message, God has given gifts to his children so that you may be mature in your faith. With that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on the sermon and we'll look at this passage in detail. Father, we come before you asking for you to speak through the words of Scripture. May I be faithful to equip the body. May I be faithful in presenting your word accurately. And may we all look at you as if in a mirror that we may see your glory this morning and thus be changed to grow from one degree of glory to another. So we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 11 tells us that God gave. Certain of you are more wired as gift givers than others. But no matter whether you are wired as a gift giver or not, One of the privileges of a loving father is to give gifts. That's one of the joys of having kids or grandkids, isn't it? That especially if you know exactly what they're looking for, that one gift on birthdays or Christmas or just because that lights them up and then you realize they actually like the box more than what was in the box. You ever had those moments? And so one, I thought of one year for Christmas when our kids were younger going to the U-Haul store and just buying cardboard boxes for our kids for Christmas because they just seemed to love that. But giving good gifts is a joy. And God, as a loving Father, dear church family, has given 
you amazing gifts. The first thing that he's given you, the first gift, set of gifts that he's given us as a church body and given you specifically, actually we need to look at the context to find. Back in verses 7 and 8, Paul explains to the Ephesian church that he's actually given every single believer gifts through the Holy Spirit to serve the body of Christ. We often refer to these as spiritual gifts. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And here he's referencing these gifts that the Holy Spirit gives each person. Spiritual gifts. What are your spiritual gifts? Are they teaching, serving, exhorting, hospitality, mercy, whatever it would be? You say, how do I find my spiritual gift? Well, please don't go to the internet and take some sort of test. I would highly recommend you to just begin serving in the church and see where God reveals fruit in that area. The needs of the church. God God will gift the membership in order to meet the needs that we have. Pastor Ben wrote an incredible uh, book on spiritual gifts. We have it available. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. It walks through everything from what are spiritual gifts to how to discover your spiritual gifts through the local church. But the thing you need to understand is that God has gifted every believer to serve in the body of Christ in a unique and diverse way. That you are gifted as a believer by the Holy Spirit to serve in this body. And you need to be working it out in this congregation. He's given gifts specifically, as he shows us in verse 11, gifts of leadership and authority. Because of the nature of the sermon series that I'm doing over the, uh, for these four or five weeks, beginning last Sunday morning, um, we're looking specifically at the gift of pastors and the group of pastors and the role that they play within a local congregation. And so in verse 11, we see that he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers. And so let's look at all four of these categories. Not only does God give spiritual gifts in verses 7 and 8, but starting in verse 11, Scripture records that he gives the church what I'm going to call foundational gifts. These gifts, these foundational gifts for the church, were found through gifted men, the apostles and women, and the prophets. You see women prophets in the New Testament as well. Ephesians chapter 2 that we read this morning references these apostles and prophets together. It says that our faith in Ephesians 2 verse 20 was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Thus I'm referring to these as foundational gifts. Ephesians chapter 3, we also read this morning, the two times where these apostles and prophets are viewed together. It's not made known to the sons of men in other generations, but it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And thus we recognize that in Ephesians chapter 2, whoever these apostles and prophets are, they act as foundations to the church, and they somehow are receiving revelation specifically from God for the church. So these two foundational gifts, the apostles and the prophets, who are the apostles? The apostles are the 11 apostles chosen by God, plus I believe, not Matthias given to the book of Acts, but I believe Paul is added to that list, thus making 12 apostles. I could be wrong in that, but I believe here that we see Jesus appearing to Paul in Acts chapter 2 and verse, uh, in, excuse me, Acts chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, as, as Paul is revealing his testimony 
you see Paul commissioned by God and Jesus revealed to Paul face to face. What makes an apostle an apostle? They had to be taught specifically by God. They had to see the risen Christ face to face. And they also had to be commissioned by God to be an apostle. So you see that in the 11 plus Paul. The teaching of these apostles served as the foundation of the church, the underpinning of the church. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. What did the early church do established at Pentecost? What was their practice? They devoted themselves, they gave themselves to, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, to the teaching of the apostles. It is the apostles' teaching forming the church in writing the New Testament that forms the foundation of the church. It's exactly what we're doing this morning, aren't we? We're giving ourselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the apostle Paul. Acts chapter 4, Paul wrote, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 4, Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. And so we are continuing that, giving ourselves to the apostles' teaching. However, in order to be an apostle, having seen the risen Christ face to face, um, sent by God to accomplish a mission of the apostles, that office, that gift died with the last apostle. Probably the apostle John on the island of Patmos would be our guess. But that office died with the apostles as a foundational gift. There are no more apostles. That gift is a foundational gift that is passed on. So is the office of the prophet. What was the function and role of the prophet? As we read through the Old Testament, we see that prophets received revelation from God and thus acted as God's mouthpiece for God's people. In the New Testament, the New Testament prophet was a little bit different in that the role of the New Testament prophet was to receive the revelation from God and do a miraculous sign of prophecy to prove that what was being said was true. You have to remember that in the book of Acts, we're talking about the foundational truths of Gentiles being grafted in the people of God. The uh, The dietary restrictions of the children of Israel no longer being applicable to the church. And so when those truths were revealed, the miraculous signs and wonders were performed in the book of Acts, including prophecies given in order to say, listen, this comes from God. Let me show you through these miracles. And so we have the prophets who aligned under the teaching of the apostles and showed miraculous prophecies to reveal the truth that what was being said, this new truth, was in fact from God. That could be a message in and of itself. I'd point you to Acts 15. You see Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, they encouraged the brothers with many words. They strengthened the brothers. And they were used in that moment in Acts 15 to, to give validity to new revelation from God through miraculous signs. The apostles and prophets are not ongoing gifts, nor are they ongoing offices. They passed off the scene in the first century. The reason that they are foundational is because they receive direct relation from God, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. It's no longer needed because we have the full revelation given to us now. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. 
So those are the foundational gifts of the apostles and the prophets. So what about these next two gifts that God gives specifically through gifted people in the church of evangelists and pastor teachers? Let's look at evangelists first. The concept of these people referenced as evangelists is given in Acts 21 and verse 8, specifically talking about Philip. It says, "In the next day we departed, came to Caesarea. We entered into the house of Philip, and they actually give Philip a title, Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. He's one of the seven that was chosen as a pre-deacon. Then they stayed with him. Then Paul in 2 Timothy tells Timothy, as a pastor, you need to be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. So we come to the conclusion throughout the pages of Scripture, specifically as we track Philip and we look through the book of Acts, that there are people in the church whose primary mission, their goal, their passion, their gifting is in constantly and powerfully giving the gospel. Now that could be church members in giving the gospel through relationships. There are some of you, and God has just given you an unusual burden to see people saved. He's given you an unusual passion and a gifting to spread the gospel, to share the word of God through the gospel with your neighbors, your co-workers. God has also given certain men this passion in preaching the gospel. It's a, it's a natural spiritual gifting. And I'll give you an illustration. On Friday, we had our barbecue and bluegrass event with Brother Steve Pettit. Brother Steve Pettit served as the president of Bob Jones University for nine years and now is traveling. And his passion, he told me Friday night, he said, listen, when I, when I was trying to figure out what God was going to do with me next, I just couldn't get past this burden of giving people the gospel. And so he travels around and, and, and play, they play, their team plays bluegrass music, they sing gospel songs, and he gives a clear gospel presentation. My father-in-law was an old-time itinerant evangelist in every sense of the word. He was a hellfire and brimstone preacher, and uh, some people knew if, if, if you had an unsafe friend, if you could just get them to hear Tom Farrell preach, they're more than likely going to get saved because the, the Spirit of God was on him in a very unique way as he passionately proclaimed the gospel. I traveled with him for a year, and he would tell me, Joe, there are churches that have come and asked me to come be their pastor. And I tell them, if I was your pastor, you would love me for a month, and then you'd want me out of town, because that's what I do. I come in, I preach the gospel, and I leave. One of the reasons why I believe in the role, the spiritual gift, the role of the evangelist is because I've seen it played out in people's lives. I, I was talking to somebody who was like, oh, the evangelist was only in the book of Acts. I said, well, if that's the case, there's nowhere else in the church for my father-in-law to serve at all. He is passionate about giving the gospel. Is it a biblical office? No, there are only two offices, pastor and deacon, elder, bishop, pastor, and deacon. There are qualifications given for those two offices. But there is definitely the role, the function of someone who is passionate about sharing the gospel. And so we would refer to them as evangelists. We have one on our pastoral staff who serves kind of a hybrid role of pastor and evangelist, Pastor Brent Savinsky. He's passionate about giving the gospel, encouraging, equipping others to do the same. 
So the evangelist would be a role in the church of people who are passionate about giving the gospel. And they may say, I got them saved, you disciple them. And then we have this final role that we're going to spend the rest of the morning on, and that is the role of pastor teacher. You can draw a, a slash, a hyphen, however you want to put it in there. But this is one role. It's clear in the original that the role is intended to go together. If you have the King James in front of you, it says pastors, teachers. If you have a modern translation in front of you, it probably is going to give you the straight, um, just the translation of the Greek word poimen there, of shepherd. That the role is to shepherd, to care. That's what the word pastor means. It means to shepherd and to care for the flock of God. As the evangelist is primarily outward focused in giving the gospel to the unsaved world, so this role of pastor teacher is primarily focused inward to the church to teach the word of God to God's people. The primary role of the pastor is not to give the gospel to the unsaved world. Although, the gospel, I believe, needs to be present in every sermon because there are unsaved people here. The primary role of the pastor is to shepherd the believers who come to the congregation, or excuse me, yeah, who come into the meeting and then join the church and the congregation. The pastors shepherd and develop the Christians in the congregation. There are entire congregations who have been neglected, and pro- many congregations, I believe, who their spiritual growth has been, um, they've been prohibited from becoming mature. Because the pastor misunderstands his role as simply getting up every Sunday and preaching a straight gospel message. The pastor-teacher role is to teach the word to God's people so that they may be mature in the faith. The evangelist's role is to, to go out to the highways and the hedges to give the gospel, see people saved, and brought into the church. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 reveals to us that the pastor's job is not to receive new revelation from the Lord, but to continue in what's passed down. But as for you, Paul tells Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. And from a child you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. As Paul tells the young pastor Timothy, Your responsibility is not to receive new revelation from God, but to give yourself to the revelation that God has given, to teach that clearly. And so the primary role of a pastor is that he is a teacher. This is not the only role, but it is the primary role. The primary way that a pastor shepherds the congregation is through teaching the word of God clearly and accurately. The pastor's function within the church is to bring the word of God to bear on the hearts and lives of people in the church. And here's what this looks like. For the pastors in our congregation, sometimes that word of God is brought to bear in a private conversation. Whether it be in a private private discipling opportunity where it's over coffee or maybe in an office somewhere where there's a specific situation that you need the scripture to be brought to bear then a pastor would accurately look at Scripture, explain what the Scripture says, and shepherd your heart in that way. That's why the pastor must be able to teach, according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. The role of the shepherd, 
the shepherds at community, is to bring the word of God to bear on your life. It's not to try to tell you what kind of house to buy, what kind of car to buy. It's to give you parental advice according to scripture, but not to tell you how you need to parent in the nuances and gray areas of life. It's not to tell you how much you need to save for retirement or how to spend your money other than to support gospel endeavors and to be a pipeline that God can use to build the kingdom of God. It's to bring the word of God to bear in your heart, in your life. And I'd like you to notice in this passage, as we talked about yesterday Sunday morning, that God did not just give one person in each one of these offices. He did not give an apostle or a prophet. He does not give a evangelist or a pastor teacher. All of these are always seen in the plural, that God gifts his church with this group of people. And thus God has gifted, I believe, Community Baptist Church with five men that you have called out to serve you in this way. So why did God give you pastors? Why does the church have pastors? Look at verse 12. He gave to equip. If you would like a brief outline of what Paul is saying here, you need to trace six words. He gave to equip so that. That's the key of the passage here. He gave foundational apostles and prophets. Without them, we would not know the revelation of God nor have that revelation confirmed. He gave evangelists and pastor teachers to win the lost and and grow the church. For what purpose? To equip the saints. He gave to equip so that. And so the first, really my first point of the message was God's gifts to the church. The second part is God's purpose for the church. He gave to equip so that. God's purpose for the church, to equip the saints. What does the word equip mean? Early on, I used to believe that this word equip meant like we think about it, like equipment. Like, I'm going to give you the tools you need to do the job. You show up. Uh, I was a a catcher all through high school in in baseball. And you would not want to be a catcher on a, on a, uh, a good high school team like I played on without the proper equipment. Because when you've got, you know, a 90 mile an hour fastball coming at you and that bat swinging and the ball can go anywhere with curveballs and knuckleballs and everything that's thrown at that level, you need protection on your shins, you need protection on your chest, and you need protection in your face. And often that ball would ricochet off. And so I used to think that this word equip meant that I need to give you the tools you need to accomplish your mission. But that's not what this word equip means. This word equip means to be brought up and grown into a mature model. And the reason that you can see that in this passage is that it says to equip the saints and then he goes into all this growth and maturity language. To grow up, to not be children, to mature, to grow up, to grow into. That word equip means that you would be brought up into maturity. 
that you would start out here and be matured to here. We'll talk about exactly what the goal of that is. But the role of the pastor, listen very carefully, the role of the pastor and the pastors is to come together to bring the congregational the congregation to spiritual maturity. Just like if you were to, to come into my house and you would be embarrassed that I was sitting in a high chair eating, you know, applesauce for lunch as a, you know, mature man, 36-year-old mature man. So you ought to be embarrassed if you've been in the church for so long yet you have not been brought to spiritual maturity. If you are still tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So the pastors ought to feel a little bit of hesitancy if, if whether or not they're presenting truth accurately, if people can sit under the preaching of the word for year after year after year after year and not be brought to spiritual maturity. Hebrews chapter 1 says it this way. Let us therefore leave the elementary doctrines and go on to maturity. You say, okay, what exactly is spiritual maturity? And it's obvious what physical maturity is in some ways. I mean, how many of you have ever had somebody tell you, will you grow up, right? Will you just grow up? My dad used to say, act your age, not your shoe size. You know? Your spiritual maturity, in a broad sense, okay? We're going to get narrower and narrower as we go this morning. In a broad sense, your spiritual maturity is you reflecting the fruit of the Spirit more accurately and more consistently, in a general sense. So in other words, as you mature spiritually, you will become more loving, more kind. You will find more joy, more gentle, more patient. That's spiritual maturity in in general. We'll get more specific as we look at this passage because he gives specific instances here. I want to draw out from the very beginning, though, Hebrews 6.1 draws this out. And also, uh, this is drawn out in the passage, and I'll show it to you. To equip the saints means the church body, to equip the saints, to bring to maturity, is in, that is in direct correlation to your knowledge of Scripture. If you're working in a job situation, being brought to maturity in a job situation is to gather the information that you need in order to do your job effectively and then to work off that information to accomplish your job effectively. Not only to know it, but to do it. And the longer you've been doing a job, the more you will know about that job and the better you'll be able to accomplish it. When I was a youth pastor, we had a guy on pastoral staff who uh, before he was a pastor was a journeyman drywaller, which means he knows what he was doing. And he could, we had this spot in our house that needed to be fixed, and I thought, drywall, how hard is it? Come on. All you do is you buy a new piece, you screw it in, and you put some mud on it, and I got a sander, and I'll be fine. And when I got done, it looked terrible, right? And I quickly found out that drywall is an art. And so I called uh, Pastor Regeer, Lauren Regeer, and I said, Pastor Lauren, can you please come help us out? So he came over, 
And within 45 minutes, he had it looking as though nothing had ever been wrong. It was beautiful. It was faded in. I mean, I don't even, I don't even know the words. It was sanded. It was mudded. It was taped. It looked beautiful because, you know, he just got that trowel or that whatever you call it, knife. It's not a knife. It's like this long. But he got that knife and he would do one pass and then I would do a pass and mine would look totally different. Same knife, right? And I'd try to mimic it, but he had so many years of the knowledge of how it worked and exactly, you know, what, you know, how, how fluid the putty needed to be for this and for that, that he had, he had grown in his maturity through the years of knowledge and application to be able to do that. And so when we look at Scripture, we say, okay, what are we supposed to be knowing? And the answer is you're supposed to grow in your knowledge of the Scripture, the knowledge of Christ. What is the pastor supposed to teach you? The Scripture. The character of Christ revealed in Scripture. So spiritual maturity is, is in essence, in a broad sense, slowly being a more accurate and full representation and consistent representation of fruit of the Spirit. What is spiritual maturity not? Well, it's not equal to physical age. There are perhaps some people who have been saved and have grown up in a church and have been saved for many, 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 many years, but have never been matured spiritually. It's not equal to money or possessions. Looking at a Christian who's super wealthy and has a lot and go, whoa, there's a mature Christian who should be in leadership and who should be impacting us because they have a lot of stuff. Like, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Spiritual maturity is not equal to money or possessions or physical age. It's even not equal to a lot of facts. You can be really smart and be really dumb, right? You can know all the facts, and have no wisdom. And so this wisdom, this spiritual maturity that we're talking about is the knowledge of Scripture and then letting those scriptural truths permeate everything about you. What will this result in? How will I know if I'm spiritually mature? Well, this passage actually gives us five reflections, five revelations of spiritual maturity that both we should pursue and when we see them, we'll know that it's a reflection of maturity. Before we get there, I'd like to reference some other ones from Scripture. James chapter 3 says that spiritual maturity is controlling your tongue. You find someone who can control what they say and, and use their speech for grace rather than for evil, to build up rather than to tear down, you find a mature person. Spiritual maturity does not give up, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 11. When times get hard, a spiritually mature person recognizes that trials are from the Lord and uses those trials to grow their maturity, deepen their maturity, grow their faith. Spiritual maturity is pursuing peace instead of conflict. Now sometimes that peace requires standing up to error. But a spiritually mature person does not stir up conflict. You ever met an instigator? I was an instigator growing up. Still am a little bit. Some of you that know, our good friends of me know that I like to, some people have buttons and if you just push them just the right way, it's so much fun, right? Um, we're supposed to stir up one another to love and good works, but not conflict. Someone who loves conflict 
It's an immature person, someone who stirs up conflict within the church rather than seeking peace, who stirs up conflict under the guise of asking a prayer request. Y'all pray for, this is when I was from the South, and this happened all the time, prayer meetings would turn into giant gossip sessions. Y'all pray for Betty now. Did you hear what happened? Now y'all pray for her, but did you hear? I heard, did you hear? I'm going to tell you so you can pray. You know, and then they go off on this tirade. Spiritual maturity is pursuing peace instead of conflict. John 13, 34, 1 Corinthians 13. Spiritual maturity is rooted in love and serving, and maturity never stops loving. Now, as we index the New Testament, we find, you know, the the marks of maturity seen in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. As you mature, those those will be more evident and more consistent in your life. But as we look at this specific passage, how I'd like to end the message this morning is to look at this specific passage and say when Paul says that pastors are given to the church to bring the church to maturity, what was he specifically thinking about? Because he gives what I believe are five, I think you break them up into five evidences, five um, evidences to pursue, five aspects of maturity that you should be pursuing as a child of God. And the first one is a maturity in serving. A maturity in serving. What is the purpose of the gifts that God has given? Specifically this morning, we're looking at the gift of the pastors that God gifts to the congregation. It is to mature the congregation in their serving. Look at verse 12. To equip the saints, all the saints, for the ministry... For the building up of the body of Christ. For the work, that word ministry means serving. Serving the church well requires maturity. Why? Because an immature person would reflect glory to themselves rather than reflect glory to God. We sang Psalm 115. Our family verse is Psalm 115.1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us give glory, but to you give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And, And as a church body, when we serve each other, a mature church body will serve with the recognition that all glory goes to Christ. When the church body is served well, it is built up, verse 12. It is, it is um, built, this is a word that's used as you build a house. You built the foundation and then you put in you know, the framing and the electrical and the insulation and the plumbing. That's the building up of the house. And so as we serve each other in maturity, the house of our church, our church family, is built up. When we are served with immaturity, the congregation is torn down. And so how do you know whether you're serving in a mature way? Is the church a stronger church as a result of you being a part of it? God matures the church body as we serve each other in maturity. That we continue to be equipped to be built up. You say, Pastor Joe, how do I serve the church? I'm going to give you a a unashamed um, plug for our church podcast. A lot of you guys are like, I don't even know you've had a podcast. Yeah, we mention it every once in a while. Ben and I do a podcast once a week called The Community Connection. 
You can look for it. Um, we're, looking, we're trying to get on Spotify. We've had some requests for that uh, from the church. We have, it's amazing. We have a huge group of like 12 people who listen. Uh, and so, but, uh, but our goal, it's a little more than that, but our goal is to have conversations that we can't have formally, like because we don't have time. Community Connection, South Bend, Indiana, you can listen to it if you listen to podcasts. We just did a podcast this past week, it went out Friday morning, on what it means to serve in the church. A lot of people are like, hey, how can I serve? How can I serve? How can I serve? And the whole podcast is given to that topic. How do you serve in the church? And I'll give you two brief areas. And if you listen, if you listen to this, um, I'd still, you should still listen to the, uh, the, the podcast. I think it will be very helpful for you. I'll try to put one out every Friday morning. Serving in the church body means serving informally by being involved in the membership's lives, in the membership of the church in their lives. So serving the church means serving people. That means getting to know people. You can't know everybody, but you can know some people. Get involved in each other's lives outside of church. It's amazing that all of us live in this area, usually within driving distance, and we have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday where we can be connecting with each other to get to know each other and serve each other. And then secondly, serving in the church body means using your spiritual gifts to formally serve the church. Maybe in the nursery, or as a Sunday school teacher, or as a greeter. We actually went through a whole list on that podcast. We have people who help in the parking lot. We have people who come, especially in the winter, who we don't want walking across the parking lot, so we park their cars for them. We have a valet service. Some of you have always wanted to be a valet parker, right? Well, you can do that every Sunday morning here to be a greeter be an usher to serve in the music ministry to serve with the the you know like we said the teaching to serve in some administrative duties during the week we have so many ways in which you can leverage your spiritual gifting to serve the body as a whole but the primary responsibility would be to serve individual people as god continues to mature our body The mark of a mature congregation is that the entire congregation wants to be involved. There's an old adage in in pastoral ministry, and you may have heard it, 90% of the work is done by 10% of the people, and 10% of the problems are, are, I'm sorry, 90% of the problems are caused by 10% of the people. It's normally an adage. Wouldn't it be great if it was 100% of the work is done by 100% of the people? That's a mature congregation, recognizing the serving. The other day I found out of another Bible study going on that I did not know was going on of a group of people who met together once every week or once every two weeks to look at scripture together over breakfast. I think that's amazing as we serve each other. So maturing and serving. Secondly, maturity seen in unity. Look at verse 13. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. It's our responsibility as pastors to give you opportunities to teach you and show you and encourage you to serve and find maturity in your life through serving. Secondly, in unity. This is both a sign of maturity and something that we pursue as a mature Christian. Until we attain, verse 13, the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God's goal is that we would be unified and find unity around the faith. This means that it's God's goal for every member of the church to be unified together. What do we find our unity around? 
Yesterday, Becky and I had the opportunity for the first time, sadly to say, since we've lived in South Bend, to go to a Notre Dame game. And I even wore a Notre Dame shirt and a Notre Dame hat. I texted my dad and I said, we are slowly going down the hill. And he texted me back and he said, all he said was, you're gone. Um, <laughs> don't read into that too much, but... Um, It's amazing. There were 80,000 people in those stands. Most of them, because we played Central Michigan, and there are only like 10 fans from Central Michigan. Um, Most of them wearing blue or green in some sense. And you walk in, and as long as you wear the right colors, you have found your best friends. I have no clue who the guy was next to me, but he's like talking to me like he's my best friend. You know? And I'm like, hey, he's like, hey, welcome to the game. I'm like, thanks, you know, and we're talking about, I don't know you, you know. People high-fiving, cheering together, doing organized cheers, singing together, songs that only they know. Right, you want to fit in, so you just mouth, you know, I don't know what I'm singing, but I don't want to be out of place. But then they walk out of the stadium, and it's all gone. I have no idea who that guy was. And we come in here, some people see church as an event where it's a lot of the same thing. We have the same songs that we sing. They're not part of our church. You don't know them. If you're a guest, you pretend like you know them so you don't feel out of place. As long as you wear the right stuff and say the right words and do the right stuff at the right time, we're all unified together. But then we leave and we have no idea who we are. Rather than finding the unity of the faith, that what binds us together is a shared experience of the gospel and the Holy Spirit present inside you and present inside me. And we together find, are matured in the sense that we recognized, we recognize the unity that we have. These verses are loaded with truth here. I'd like to just point out one more thing around unity, that this unity is found in Christ alone. Look at the end of verse 13. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Do you know why you need to be full of the fruit of the Spirit? Is because Jesus was. That when Christ is full in you and coming out in you, it looks like the fruit of the Spirit. And when you are filled up with Christ, we have that shared experience and that shared unity that we are to be built up in him. And yes, we may find maybe human examples that we want to follow. But remember, even Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Look to Jesus. Maturing in unity. Maturing in serving. Thirdly, maturing in sound doctrine. Maturing in sound doctrine. Look at verse 14. So that, so that we may no longer be children. That's, you see this equip, this growing up in maturity all through this passage. God is given pastors to the church so that spiritually you may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, cunning, by craftiness and deceitful deceitful schemes. It's the responsibilities of the pastors of the church to teach and lead and guide and mentor the church in sound doctrine so that you may not be carried away. 
I don't know if you knew this or not, but not everything that's written and called Christian is biblically accurate. Not every post on social media is an accurate representation of what Scripture says. Even if people say, the Bible says. Every heretic has a Bible verse. Most of them are interpreted wrongly and are taken out of context. We must be careful. And friend, there, God has given you a gift to help you in that. And it's the pastors of your church. You say, I don't trust the pastors of my church. Then go find a church where you trust the pastors and align under it. You need to be in a place where the pastors stand where the Bible is between you and them. This is why the pulpit is structured the way that it is. It's why we do things the way that we do. And we can say the Bible says this. The Bible teaches this. Let me show you. I shared this uh, with the deacons in our deacons meeting on Monday, but I heard a... um, R.C. Sproul was a wonderful man of God. Um, who wrote and probably did more for Christian apology, Christian apologists with, the, with understanding the difference between Christianity and the Catholic Church than anyone else, in my opinion, in the 20th century and the 21st century. Just passed away a couple years ago. Uh, R.C. Sproul is a Presbyterian. R.C. Sproul's best friend is a man who's still alive, pastors in Los Angeles, California, named John MacArthur. John MacArthur pastors a, uh, a, Baptist, a Baptistic church. And, um, and so in 1998, these two best friends who were kind of national leaders in their groups, R.C. Sproul challenged John MacArthur to an argument on, I mean, argument, a uh, discussion, a debate on baptism. So if you know anything, we're not going to be reductionist here, but Presbyterians baptize babies, Baptists baptize um, those after their profession of faith, they're based on their confession of faith, okay? So Presbyterians baptize into the church, we would see the scripture's pattern of being saved, then baptized, okay? And they have scriptural reasons, okay? I obviously think, you know, one way, or I wouldn't be pastoring a Baptist church. There's scriptural reasons for that, and R.C. Sproul challenged John MacArthur to a debate in 1998 National Ligonier Conference. And he gave a testimony, I read it this week, where he had someone come up to him at the Ligonier Conference and said, I hear you're challenging John MacArthur to a debate on baptism, I hope you change John's mind on the subject. These are two men who love the Lord and love the word of God. And here was R.C. Sproul's response, which I think is amazing. Here's what he said. Let me tell you something about the John MacArthur that I know, that if you can prove your position to him from the pages of sacred scripture, he will change it in a heartbeat. Because I've never met a man in my life who is more sold on the building of his theology on the basis of Scripture alone than my brother John. That's an amazing statement. Now, he didn't change John's mind, okay? That was 25 years ago. But that statement, man, it struck me this week. That if somebody ever has a debate with you scripturally, their only responsibility should be to show you in scripture, knowing that if they show it to you in scripture, you will immediately change your mind. Because the answer isn't, do I like it? My dad used to tell me when I was a teenager, you need to get your liker fixed. You like some things that God doesn't like. I was running from God. 
right? It's not about whether you like it. It's not about whether it makes you comfortable. And listen carefully, friend. It's not about whether you want it to be that way. Do I like the fact that those who are unbelievers spend eternity in hell? No. But that's what the Bible says. So we believe it, friend. And so when you go into these discussions of sound doctrine, may I encourage you to read your Bible, friend. Read your Bible. Know your Bible better than you know someone else's view of what the Bible says. Be immersed in Scripture. Read both sides thoroughly on whatever you're looking at. And then ask the question, what does the Bible convince me of? God has given you gifts to help you with that. And I'm not trying to be unkind, but those gifts are the pastors that he's provided at this church. If you are a member, and if you're in the position of saying, I don't trust my pastors, then as a pastor, can I tell you, you need to be in a church where you do. And where you are convinced that that group of pastors is dedicating themselves to Scripture as much as as I know with a clear conscience before you, I can, I can tell you this morning that the group of men that I know that I have spent hours and hours and hours, some of them too many hours, hours and hours with, right? Looking at Scripture in prayer, weeping for our church. That these men are dedicated to the Scripture. We are to find maturity in our sound doctrine. The last two, maturity in our teaching Speaking the truth in love that is given in contrast to the unbelievers who are trying to deceive you with their cunning deceit. Trying to twist the Bible to make it say what it doesn't say. But rather we speak the truth in love. I would encourage you to stay away from labels and movements. Be content to know your Bible well and identify yourself with Scripture. Truth and love. And then lastly, maturing in diversity. I'd like you to look at verse 16 as we close. From the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which it is equipped. Look at the next phrase in verse 16. When each part is working properly. Frank, can I tell you something this morning? There's no one in our church like you. There's not. You have a role in this congregation. We have a phrase we say often, you need the church, and the church needs you. There's no one else gifted like you. There's no one else who can serve like you can serve. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we don't have time to look at it. The hand, the foot, the eye, the mouth, the head. Christ is our head. We are parts of his body, and we're tempted to look at other gifts and say, man, you know, I may be a toenail and that person is a hand. And Paul says, whoa, 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 every part is needed and valuable. And God puts value on all of them. There's no one else in our church like you. You are needed and you need us. I'll close with this last illustration. There are some in our church who have recently gotten into beekeeping Beekeeping is always fascinating. Brother Gary Hopkemeyer has now become the expert on beekeeping. And he would not say that, but I will say that. I was homeschooled growing up. 
And um, I had a lot of extra time to read. My mom would get so frustrated with us that she'd take us to the library and say, I'll pick you up in two hours. Please go read something. And so it was before, you know, the internet was a big thing. And so we'd go to the library and I got fascinated by bees. Um, Bees are incredible. Because you can have a hive of tens of thousands of bees and to an untrained eye, like the first time we've got, I went over to someone else's house, they had bees, and you look, it just looks like a swarm and you're very thankful for the net that's in between you and them, especially if you don't like bees very much, it looks like a swarm. But to the trained eye, they can see individual bees doing individual things. Hey, look, that's a drone. Hey, look, that's a worker bee. Look, that one was just, it was just born or whatever, hatched maybe, I don't know what you call it just came into existence and you can tell because the way it's working and these bees their responsibility is this and look there's the queen and bees work together in an amazing way the queen's job is crucial the drone's job is outside the hive the nurses take care of the bees when they're born there's actually a bee role called the undertaker and their whole role is to take the dead bees out of the hive. There are the builders who build the wax. There are the house bees which clean everything. There are the fanners, and their whole job is to take their wings and beat it at just the right pitch so the, so the hive stays the right temperature and the right humidity. And when they need more water, they'll go out, get more water, and spread it on the hive. And when it's, when it's too wet, they'll heat up the hive with their wing beats and dry it. I mean, it's incredible. Some of you are asleep right now. I think it's fascinating. Man. You have some bees and all they do is follow the queen around to keep her clean and feed her because she's so busy laying all these eggs. You've got the guard bees that stand out front with their big stingers waiting to attack you. You've got the foragers that come back with the big yellow legs. But they're all, they're all doing their different jobs. And when you look at it, you say, wait a minute, who's in charge of those bees? God is. And every single one of those bees knows exactly what they're doing and they never try to step out of their lane to do something else unless it's time for them to do so and there's a need for them to do so. And I told Gary this months ago when we started talking about bees. I think bees are probably the most beautiful picture of the church and that everyone is important. And everyone is valuable. And as that hive grows, so do the responsibilities. But everyone is serving. How do we know that we'll have a mature congregation when we have everyone involved in serving in each other's lives? When everyone says, I'm, yeah, I know so-and-so, and we, we talked here, and we got together and prayed, and I'm serving in this way in the corporate body, and all these different things, serving together, each one vitally important. Because you need the church, and the church needs you, and there's no one like you. And it's the pastor's responsibility as a group to come together and to encourage you in that. So why do you have pastors? To bring you to maturity. And it looks like all of those things in Ephesians 4. Founded on the person of Christ, growing by our knowledge of Scripture, showing the fruit of the Spirit. And may God give us grace to grow together in our spiritual maturity 
and thus serve together, teach together, lead together in spiritual maturity. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the way in which your word is just so clear. Thank you for the role that you've given the pastors of the church to mature the body of Christ. God, I'm so thankful for the pastors that you have brought to this congregation, each gifted uniquely, and each in their own way, in your timing, with their own spiritual gifts, seeking to mature the congregation in the knowledge of Scripture and in the knowledge of the person of Christ. And I pray that you would grow us up into a mature body, that we would be serving together, unified around the faith, that you would help us to be mature in knowing our sound doctrine, that we would be mature in our teaching of giving that truth in love, and that in the diversity of gifting here at Community, that we would reveal our maturity even in our diversity, the spiritual gifts you provided through your church. May you strengthen us and draw us closer to you.